Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to Monday Breakfast here on 3CR Community Radio. However you're listening to us, you are very welcome. I hope you've had a good Easter weekend, um, whether you were working like I was or whether you were on holidays like a lot of other people were. Um, hopefully you got some time to spend with your family if that's what, you're, um, what you seek or you just filled yourself with chocolate if that's the, the other option mm. available to people it seems. Unlike any other weekend when I never fill myself with <laughs> chocolate. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Um, so basically... We're here on a Monday morning, broadcasting still, not right. taking note of the the supposedly sacred Easter day. Monday. I'm very confused, yeah, not yeah. having a very um, uh, complex and rigorous mm. religious upbringing mm. as to the difference between, say, the Friday of Easter yeah. and the Monday and Easter. I feel like it's something to do with the three days before yeah, yeah. Well, actually, he I, was raised. I'm not. I'm not. A, I'm, so, this is kind of from very vague memories of a kind of Christian um, education. Even though we weren't really Christian growing up, mm-hmm. but like just the right school. Easter Monday mm-hmm. is not a thing. It's just an Australianism. So they don't really do this in other countries. What? Nothing really happened with Jesus on Easter Monday. It was on Sunday that he floated up into the sky and rejoined the. Um, um, the God, Godness. Um, good Godness. The good, yeah. I, you, you can hear at home, I clearly don't know what I'm talking about. But I do know that Easter Monday is just an Australian thing. Well, I mean, it, it does happen in other countries, but it's not all across um, countries with large Christian popu- populations. Right. Yeah. I, I thought it was it's just a holiday the rolling the of the rock. Sorry to talk over you. Well, it always, um, because Easter Sunday always falls on a Sunday... A lot of Australians thought it was unfair that we're already not working on a Sunday, according to the convention of a a five-day working week. Mm -hmm. We decided that we would take the Monday off. But we already had the Friday off. Well, you know, whatever, man. (laughs) I think that sounds like a wonderful work, I'm imagining, by some powerful federated union. (laughs) Yeah, well... That's my guess. Yeah, well, I mean, guess away, because I have no answers for you. Yeah. But You've um, got to grasp those days off from the, <laughs> you know, the vicious, cold hands of... Cal- Sorry, I've been at the Marxism conference all ah, weekend. We're so going to hear about that later, aren't we? <laughs> we did, yeah I, took yeah. I took some recordings. I wanted to do more, but it was very busy. I tell yeah. you what, it was... What was I it will, like? Look, it was really interesting. And yeah. one thing I will say is that I was incredibly impressed by the quality of conversation, not just from the speakers, who, mm. you know, largely were, were very, very interesting on a very broad range of topics always through a Marxist lens, mind. <laughs> but afterwards, the rank-and-file members, I suppose, of Socialist Alternative who run the conference, mm. their, um, the level of conversation amongst them was, you know, very, very good and, you know, mm. very, um, very well-read, very well-considered. They had a very dif- definite political platform, which they continued to return to. I certainly okay. learned a lot about the value of struggle, Struggle as a educational device that through struggle, that is how you develop the tools necessary to then run a new form of society. Mm. You can't just plan it theoretically. You can't go, well, what would a functioning workers community look like? You only discover what it will look like through the overthrowing of your capitalist corporate masters. So it does require a little you know, teaspoon of violence in your revolutionary coffee. Oh. I, well, that was my right, understanding. Right, right, right. The, the, 
you know, the, the constant is that just refrains the, the use to, of the of word struggle. struggle. Well, it is direct struggle against those I'm that are... I'm definitely hearing a capital S on that word as well. Like I heard thing. it is a thing. Can you pick up a struggle? What does the struggle look like? You can, you can jump on board, mm-hmm. I think. You know, there was a lot of commentary, very interesting commentary about, you know, from the Marxist perspective, history moves in waves um, as capitalism continues to take away and destroy everything that is good and humane in society by turning everything into a commodity and a profit, eventually there's a point of pushback, of fight back, where people say, you know what, I'm just not going to take it anymore. Hmm. And those t- times are very difficult to predict, according to the people I was hearing from. Like, no one really predicted that Tunisia, for example, yeah, during the Arab Spring, was suddenly yeah. going to say after 20 years of, um, I, of dictatorship mm. that they were going to run into the streets and, ta- and remove the government. in Tunisia, though. Um, like from the outside, we weren't really aware of the increase in what was it? Was it fuel excises or something? That yeah. it was, it was something to do with agricultural kind of You're cost exactly of right. living kind of things where Taxes on food it was pushed just a bit too far. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then that, uh, market stall holder, the gentleman whose name escapes me, lit himself on fire in protest and mm-hmm. that led to the protests. Mm. Um, so it was global yeah. finance. It wasn't a mm. Tunisian-specific problem. It uh, was it was actions taken in other countries to regulate, right. you know, different economies. And yeah, it was around food. It was mm. the taxing of food. Right. Anyway, there was a lot of really interesting um, things which we'll get to over the show. Up first up along yeah. the show after yeah. we do our alter- our brief alternative news yes. segment. Yeah. Uh, We'll be hearing from uh, a writer and an educator, an early childhood educator, and also an educator with people with special needs. He did a segment. I'm going to do the the radio introduction here. It was called "Screw or Do Away with Mindfulness," and it's really about uh, the kind of rise of positive psychology in the school, in the workplace, and even in the home, and how mm. those types of discourses feed into those spaces. And then we'll also be covering a little bit across the show today of. Um, uh, just approaches to Indigenous activism. Uh, a lot of our listeners will be aware that coming up on the 4th of April, which is very soon, the Stolen Wealth Games are starting up in on the Gold Coast in Queensland. Coast, yeah. So right. we'll be hearing from Claire Land, who wrote a book called Decolonising Solidarity. She's done an interview yeah. with In Your Face, which will be replaying, a really good interview. Um, yeah, and that's sort of in the lead-up to our coverage of the Stolen Wealth Games as well. That's going to be starting from next week, I believe. Um, as the Stolen North Games take place, they start. Uh, it's actually in a couple of days. In a couple of this days. week, yeah, this, yeah week, this Wednesday. This Wednesday. Um, mm-hmm. So, so Monday, um, not just Monday breakfast, but all of the breakfast shows will be the whole breakfast family. The whole breakfast family. That's right. Which you, of course, listen to every day for, uh, in the morning as you get ready, don't you? If um, I'm awake, of course. <laughs> um, and then we're closing out the show list, uh, speaking to Sean Bedlam, who's a comedian, um, coming to talk to us about his new comedy festival show, Death to America. Yes. Um, so that's going to be exciting. Very uncontroversial title. I'm sure he hasn't <laughs> received any strange phone calls. Well, I don't know. I feel like in comedy circles, anti-Americanism is sort of fairly well established outside uh, of the U.S., I must say that I had a look into Sean, obviously, because we're going to mm. talk to him. And, mm. and before he began the show, Death to America, he had a fine and lustrous beard, but now he is sans beard. So read into that uh, what you will. Oh, okay. We're going to talk about that. That's mm. one, of the, one of the main questions we're going to be asking him. Mm-hmm. Alrighty. Well, it sounds like a pretty good show. Let's do a little bit of alternative news. Yeah. Some folks know about it, some don't. Welcome back to 3CR Community Radio. This is just going to be a very, very quick alternative news. And in fact, I'm not sure it's really going to be all that alternative. It's just things that seem really important to me personally. Um, so one of them is coming out of the Guardian Australia, um, oh which just seems to be one of the few um, outlets that's doing some really good reporting on um, Australia's um, asylum seeker policy. Um, and this one is not entirely about Australia. It's actually more about Nauru and the Nauruan government um, having started proceedings, actually completed proceedings, to withdraw Nauru from the Australian High Court. You may not have known, um, folks listening at home, but uh, Nauru uh, 
since 1976, apparently, was um, under a mutual agreement between Australia and Nauru that the highest court or uh, highest court of appeals would be the Australian High Court. And so it was in the Australian High Court that people like the Nauru 19 uh, and other Nauru asylum seekers and also Nauruans themselves were able to make appeals against um, judgments in the Nauru Supreme Court. Um, and so this has impact on um, the sort of clarity of roles in um, who's responsible for the asylum seekers on Nauru and mm. what um, what uh, appeals processes are available to them. So they were put there by Australia, as we all know, mm-hmm. um, in um, detention centres on Nauru, mm-hmm. and they used to have access to the Australian High Court as their final court of appeal. Mm-hmm. For the uh, grievances for that the they grievances. certainly have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, and uh, that... Uh, so the, the proceedings for Nauru to withdraw from the agreement that allowed um, that had um, Nauru placed underneath Australia's High Court have been completed in, I think it was mid-March. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm not entirely certain what the next step is. Um, according to The Guardian, it seems like this will have um, direct impact on the appeals that are currently underway in the Australian High Court for um, Nauru and based asylum seekers who are kept in detention there. So um, so it's just a story that we're going to have to keep watching mm. to see what happens next. And, yeah, there, there, there's, there are accusations flying around that the government, the Nauruan government, is doing this because of the appeals by asylum seekers that Australia's put there. Um, they claim, the, the Nauruan government claim that it's um, the nation maturing and gaining its own um, sovereignty, and so there's definitely something in that. Mm. Um, and so it's, uh, it's a complex story that deserves um, deeper reading. Mm. And I think... Um, People who are interested in, and, and people who care about the 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 asylum seekers and refugees that Australia has put in Nauru mm-hmm. should be paying attention to this as well, um, because it is a change in the legal status of the people who are there, who we put there. It makes me think as well. I think twelve or eighteen months ago, there was a stoush between the Papua New Guinean government about um, uh, the Manus Island uh, facility mm. that they their courts. Wanted to close it. Yeah, they courts in- ruled them as um, unconstitutional and in yes. violation of human rights according to Papua New Guinea law. Um, and then they had to close... Um, Australia was forced eventually to close um, that facility, but instead of bringing the detainees to Australia, um, they were sent to new facilities that are classed differently. This is my understanding. I'm not mm-hmm. entirely certain what the difference between the mm-hmm. East Lorengau House, which is one of the new facilities... Mm-hmm. Um, what the difference between that and the original facility in um, uh, the military base, the, uh, the Australian Air Force base that's on Manus Island, mm-hmm. um, which used to ho- house the um, house the it, Manus Island asylum seekers. It does feel like these island nations, you know, so long the um, <clears throat> the eye of Australian imperialists in a mm-hmm. way, you know, for, for business and for, you know, the storing of human beings that we've decided mm-hmm. we don't want are using legal mechanisms to try and push back somewhat against these arrangements. I don't know. You're at the same time still being host to... Um, party to these... Party parties. to the sort of offshore detention of, um, of asylum seekers mm. with no, no one's insight to their, to their imprisonment. So mm. it's, it's really complicated and it's something that I don't understand completely. You can hear mm. by the way that I've been describing this, folks at home. Um, but yeah, it's just, a, it's just something that we... Like, in... in I feel like there are a lot of conversations happening now in a lot of circles, activist circles, about um, that there's Me Too, and for some reason we're we're getting very involved in the... We're hearing a lot about the sort of anti-guns movement in the US, and there are so many messages out there, but, I mean, there's one that we um, need to keep talking about. There was the march on uh, Palm Sunday mm-hmm. um, for, for asylum seekers, mm-hmm. um, and so that's that's part of a continuing sort of consciousness of Australia's part in indefinite detention of asylum seekers. Mm. And um, yeah, let's just just keep reading these stories and keep paying attention and keep um, mm. lobbying your local represent- representative if that's mm. something you're interested in, mm. um, or something you care about rather. Okay, and now we're going to hear an interview from Marxism Conference 2018. This is uh, George Jokera. He is an educator of people. Uh, young people with special needs, as well as an adult educator in the university sector. And he's talking about the rise of positive psychology, mindfulness apps, um, 
training within workplaces to make you feel more at ease and restful and just some of the problems with some of these uh, dialogues and ideas. Is there language we have to watch out for in this one? No, I don't believe there is. Okay, cool. I'm here at the Marxism Conference 2018 with George Shakira. He just gave a speech on, I'll call it um, screw mindfulness for our morning radio audience. Um, But looking at kind of ideas around positive psychology and self-improvement and the way they manifest in um, late capitalist discourse. It's a fascinating talk and I'm lucky enough to have a chat with George now about it. Um, George, why do you think we're seeing a preponderance of mindfulness in various social spaces, work, school, even the home at the moment? Well, I, I suppose inevitably uh, over the last three decades in particular with sort of neoliberal economic policy, there's been a, a growing dislocation of old um, ties of, you know, of institutions like the family, you know, further breakdown of those sorts of institutions, those cultural norms and ties. And in many ways... Uh, some of the, the practices we see in things like um, mindfulness, for example, as, as pushed by management theory and education theory, or uh, oh, using the opportunity to fill a space, uh, an opportunity which also comes with possibilities of profit-making in some cases, although it's not always um, in the first case about that. Um, and it comes really hand in hand with the development of management theory itself through this period of neoliberalism, um, with an emphasis on, effectively on sucking, I mean, if you want to put it in these sort of terms, sucking the lifeblood of human creativity that once perhaps, you know, um, uh, reigned in personal life and personal spheres, um, to um, further increase productivity and competitiveness. I mean, and, and we've all heard, for example, of the these days what are considered the model workplaces, the Google workplace, where you know the whole uh, um, division of work and home dissipates, um, or in theory dissipates. You know, and everybody brings in their bean bags and you know their pool tables and everything else into the workplace, uh, and they work 15-hour days, of course, um, but they're more creative, theoretically, or supposedly, um, because they're bringing those energies and that, um, that, I suppose, emotional commitment that previously would have been reserved for family life or relationships or whatever into the workplace. So that's, I suppose, that, that Google-type workplace is really the model workplace. It's not very real in most workplaces, but it's that sort of philosophy, that culture which is then imposed or effectively pushed throughout the workforce. And of course, you know, the average workforce doesn't have the billions and billions of dollars to spend that Google does. So in many respects, some of that becomes a parody, you know, so the workplaces that put in one sort of half-broken ping-pong table into the staff room is a sort of a parody, of course, of, you know, the Google workplace, but it's pushing that same culture. And mindfulness sort of fits neatly into that. Often mindfulness is presented as a remedy to stress or unhappiness in the workplace, that if you're getting overwhelmed or overworked, you just need to take some time out and work on yourself for a little while. You spoke a bit about the way that approach ignores the causes of that stress. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I I suppose I was quite deliberate about the provocative title because, you know, everybody needs, in in the world we live in and have lived in for a long time, um, everybody needs reprieve, you know, and needs um, distraction and and even even better, of course, if you can find some moments of joy. And, you know, for, for, well, more than decades, for hundreds of years, you know, we've used pills, alcohol, uh, sport, you know, there's a myriad of things that have more than one meaning, more than one purpose, and, and one of them is the ability to use those things to escape to some extent, or at least, you know, some consolation from the stresses of life. I think what's particularly insidious about at least the way that things like mindfulness are being pushed now by management theory is that, unlike many of those other things, it's very much not about escape, but actually about investing yourself more in your problem you know so if you go to any mindfulness course in the workplace and they abound now especially in um, white collar and intellectual workplaces you know it's all about the objectives of these workshops are all about you being better at work so they're not about how you can you know escape or how you can rest um, 
get any sort of reprieve, like in the past you might have out of a bottle of alcohol or anything else, you know, or even the church. Uh, it's very much about investing more in this system, investing more in the neoliberal um, lifestyle, if you like. So I think in that sense it's particularly insidious. It need not be, of course. I mean, it's not, this is not an argument against mindfulness techniques as such. You know, there are people who may well find some reprieve in meditation in the same way as others find in appeal or in, you know, in alcohol or in sport or in a range of other things. And as I said before, all those things have more than one meaning. But that's one aspect or one meaning that um, those things have is the means by which people get some reprieve um, so it's not an argument against technique as techniques that may be involved in mindfulness it's about the culture that's being pushed through this uh, which is very much a um, corporate culture yeah and it's often about using mindfulness techniques to avoid absenteeism or increase productivity and uh, you spoke interestingly about you know, I don't think you're presenting um, a treatise against being happy or against being calm, but you spoke about the kind of happiness that this positive psychology um, and even some cognitive behavioural psychology, this mindfulness movement is promoting, is a long way from what, say, the ancient Greeks or Eastern philosophy was talking about when it, when it, uh, for example, Aristotle's ideas of being able to contemplate, being able to think, because it's not really asking young people or workers to think. It's asking them to... Well, what, what would you say? Well, yeah, it's inter- interesting you should say that. I mean, I, the whole Greek idea of love of knowledge is not in the equation whatsoever because, of course, that implies um, going beyond the sort of um, epistemological sort of categories that are, falsify our relationship to the world, you know, uh, which Greek philosophy was all about, you know, actually understanding the world, okay, albeit in a sort of pre-scientific era when there was limitations uh, in terms of human development, I suppose, historical development, but it was about that love of knowledge, seeking truth, etc. I mean, those things are nowhere in the equation when we talk about modern day's idea, uh, modern day, or neoliberal at least, ideas of happiness. Um, so it's much more a, a sort of, I, I think I said in the talk, I, I like uh, the French philosopher's Bourdieu's term of a sort of a totalitarian individualism. It's all inward looking, and as you suggested beforehand, it's about how everything is about you. So the, the problem is never outside of you. It's never the social context or the situation. It's you. So the problem, for example, and this is my interest in all this, is saying schooling. The problem is not the school. It's not even bad teachers or, or it's not a dysfunctional family. It's the kid. You know, that seven-year-old kid who's, quote, disruptive at school and is hence going to be forced to sit in front of a computer and listen to... Um, uh, smiley minds, you know, for half an hour or ten minutes or whatever. It, it, the reason they're being forced, and they truly are forced in some cases, into that sort of um, mindfulness workshopping is because the problem is him or her, uh, supposedly. It's not, you know, the school environment, the curriculum, none of that gets interrogated. And of course, it's the same in the workplace. You know, any issues, stresses, it's not the workplace itself, it's not management. You know, it's not um, the objectives of the work they're doing or whatever. It's you. Yeah, it seems to be the advice is adjust yourself to the material circumstances rather than change the material circumstances to improve your situation. The onus is all on you. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. I was also struck, you mentioned a lot in your talk about family and how family used to be a space of respite, uh, a space where you could um, leave work and go to a place where you could emotionally invest, you could creatively invest. But that kind of struck me a bit false because even within good functioning family life, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. How do you respond to that? Oh, no, look, it's true. I, I probably painted the family with a little bit of glowing colours. I, I suppose it's a relative thing in the sense that, um, for example, in the US, one statistic I mentioned in the talk, in the US, um, roughly now um, 70% of children in the US live in a family situation where all adults work. 
So there's not even the ability to have any commu- basic communication. Um, okay, in the past it might not have always been pleasant communication, obviously, because you know, things like domestic violence are not new under capitalism uh, and all the other dysfunctionalities that go with family, you know, in inverted commas, which it, it itself is uh, an you know, institution going back hundreds of years, a problematic institution going back hundreds of years. But that said, um, the possibility in many cases for those 70% of kids in the US now, for example, doesn't even exist because you're not going home to mum or dad or uncle or anything. Um, you're going home either to just be with your Nintendo or your, well, I should say, Xbox these days or whatever, um, or if you're you know, more middle class, maybe with some paid nanny service, etc. So there's not even the possibilities in many cases. Or even okay, at a more simple level, I mean, the average blue-collar worker in Australia who's trying to pay off a mortgage, well, that worker is probably doing a six-day week, certainly a 60-hour week anyway. Uh, there's no way you can get into a mortgage you know, in the last 10 years in Australia and not have two people working, even with only one kid, uh, and working probably that 50, 60-hour week. So that sort of breakdown of those institutions and those ties, it's not just the family, it's also even religious organisations, which, again, full of problems. You know, it's not like religion, especially organised religion, has played a particularly progressive role in, globally you know, over long periods of time. But that said, um, you know, the fact that um, some of those institutions provided some community for some people, you know, so much of that has been broken down in various ways. Um, either because people don't have time, but also culturally broken down. Um, You know, they are not factored in, really. Um, And instead, um, the focus is very much on this individual, you know, being out there as their own brand, you know, in the world and building on that brand and everything becomes about that. And, of course, even technology feeds into that. You know, I mean, in the age of um, the internet and social media, you know, instead of, I mean, this is a great irony. I didn't get a chance to talk about this too much, but it's an irony that's been known for a long time amongst those who, I suppose, in theory, in terms of debates around um, the internet. I mean, when the internet first started, of course, some of the main... um, propagandists, for want of a better term, of the internet, were left-wing people because, you know, we saw it as a way of improving communication. And it does do that, and it can do that, and it can be a democratic platform. But in reality, what has it become? Less and less of that. I mean, if you look at the internet now, 70% of traffic on the internet is video watching. So there's no interaction there. <laughs> people are watching YouTube videos. It's as passive as TV ever was. So, it, you know, that sort of, all those things contribute, you know, to this further and further isolation of the individual. Yeah, I think coming back to mindfulness as well in the workplace, what is often presented, you know, I'm a younger person, I'm a young worker, and I am definitely susceptible to these messages from Google that your workplace will be a place of fun. It'll be a place where you go and you you have a good time. It's where your meaningful relationships are. That's where you yourself are ideated or created, you know, through what you do. But, I mean, how do you respond to that idea that, that work... Or how do you combat the seduction of that idea that work, something that we all have to do, could also be something really fun and something that improves us and makes us better people? What's a a Marxist response to that kind of um, marketing that's so present in in modern advertising? I mean, for Christ's sake, they even make the military look appealing in ads (laughs) these days. So... Well, you know, it's a, that's a really hard question because, to be honest, I think the marketing side of it is the easy part in a way because, you know, you, you develop a certain, as a sort of a left-wing, you don't have to be a Marx, a left-wing person, you develop a sort of a critique of the media. and But actually, the harder part of it is just the reality of everyday work because you get into work, especially if you're in intellectual, in any sort of white-collar or intellectual work, you get into work, you open your email, and from the first moment, you're being forced to invest you know, people are questioning your commitment in various ways, suggesting it's not always negative. Often what's worse is the positive. You did such a great job on that, George. You know, I bet you're going to do an even better job on this next thing I give you. That's the really difficult stuff to resist, and that's the really stressful stuff, to be honest. I find that the sort of the um, marketing side of it almost a relief because I can laugh at that. You know, and I think left-wing people or conscious, you know, People can almost get some relief out of the marketing side of it because you literally laugh, you know, you think, what a joke. But it is that literally that thing that happens every 15 minutes at work itself, especially in a lot of the um, intellectual sort of 
professions that working class people are engaged in, you know, the teaching professions, the nursing, you know, where you're forced, you're using your mind, you know, as well. Um, not to say, and I, as I mentioned in the talk, that even in blue collar situations, this sort of stuff isn't happening because, you know, like you can work in the postal service and the suggestion is you, you know, if you don't work hard enough or, or are committed enough, you're doing a disservice to the community, you know, in, in terms of the mail or whatever it is. So, or call centres are the same. You know, there's a lot of this stuff. This sort of management stuff is big in call centres, huge in call centres. And, I mean, if you really step back and look at that objectively, I mean, does anyone working in a call centre do something good for society? Not really. <laughs> you know, so, but, you know, you can start to invest and feel like you have to invest. And that's not to mention all the stuff about promotion, of course. And, and you know, I mean, that, and that's motivated sometimes by the simplicity that, um, of economics itself, because of course, if you don't get promoted and you stay on 50 grand a year, well, you ain't going to buy a house and you're not going to do anything else. But then, of course, with that come all the other things and in the in the lobotomy that occurs at a certain point, because you might be a very critical person, but I've seen many, many people who get to a certain point where literally a certain sort of intellectual lobotomy occurs and all their critical ideas, you know, get pushed to the side because, you know, basically they status or something else drove, you know, that shift you know, that gear shift. Yeah, I think we can see the um, prevalence of mindfulness therapies as a response to a, um, an epidemic of stress and misery in the workplace as well. And it's interesting that those, well, it's not that interesting that those running the workplaces are not that interested in uncovering the causes of that stress. And I think you're describing it there too. The one that always blows my mind is the, me- the email or text message from a colleague at 10 p.m. on a Sunday. They're still working. And the and the implication is that you should still be working, you know, if you really care or you're really invested, as you say, in your work. But I kind of want to just work to be paid and then I want to have a life. Oh, and look, and this, I mean, there's so many angles to that question because, you know, that's one of the things that um, where technology comes quite directly into it because, you know, before the mobile phone, of course, that was a meaningless thing. You know, there was no email that could actually be easily accessed, etc. So technology feeds into all of this in, in a range of ways. But, look, I've been... Just recently, actually, I've been trying to deal with this on a quite personal level, thinking about, you know, having to think through every response. So you get that email at 10 p.m. and think, well, yeah, I'm not going to reply. I'm not going to, more importantly, I'm not going to stress about it. Um, But, of course, that's full of contradictions and complexities because unless you have a discourse towards your workmates in relation to that, then there is something bad you are doing. And it's not about the job. It's about your workmate. And that's where that's where the most horrible stuff goes on because you're being made to feel like you are doing something anti-human, and in a sort of sense you are, but n- because you're being forced into a situation, a situation you should not be forced into, and that's where really I suppose the only possibility is some sort of political agitation, and that doesn't mean anything even particularly grandiose, but just conversations mm. that try to you know, and that's my big thing these days is just have more and more of those conversations and, and not avoid them. Just conversations that they're not even about whether you're in a union or whatever, but they're actually quite simple conversations with workmates about, you know, who's putting this pressure on you? Who's, you know, why is this? How real is this? Are you doing brain surgery? You're not, you know, whatever it is, you know, you're working in a place where really all you're actually contributing to is money making for someone or maybe a service, but a service that's, a service that's ill-provided and privatised, so, you know, don't worry about it too much, etc. So, I, I think just, it's probably the only option, really, is some level of agitation, you know, day to day. Well, thanks very much for having a conversation with me today and uh, enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you very much. Thanks for that, Anthony. 3CR Breakfast would like to say thanks to program sponsor, the New International Bookshop, for the financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. And you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. This is Monday Breakfast. We've just been speaking, uh, just been hearing from George Jokera, who was speaking at the Marxism Conference. Um, uh, George is a special needs educator and academic and was talking about the rise of positive psychology and mindfulness apps in schools and problematizing these as well. Um, so we, we might talk about the weather because that's very important in a lot of people's lives. If you're planning on leaving the house today, uh, it is currently 16 degrees outdoors, and when I walked to the studio this morning, it was kind of beginning to rain, but a sort of mm. very fine drizzle um, starting, and the leaves were falling off the trees. We're definitely heading into autumn at the moment. We're looking at a maximum of 21 today, so not very warm, 
and it's going to be cloudy with um, showers over the southeastern suburbs in the early morning and a slight chance elsewhere. So it's going to be either damp or cloudy where you are today. Mm. So. Now, some people out there might have asked one of their new whiz-bang Google Home or mm. Amazon things about the weather and they tell them in a friendly voice what it would be. Mm. One of the things that George Trachera, who we were just talking about, uh, who we just, we just heard from, I'm sorry, was speaking about um, at the conference about the, um, you know, the, the, the steady um, involvement in your personal life of mm. products and commodities, a bit like when you want to feel well instead of just you know, engaging with a friend or talking to family, you, you pull out an app and you quickly make yeah, yourself yeah. feel well. He was yeah. also talking about the rise of, in the United States, uh, these professional services such as hire a grandma for the day, hire a friend. Mm. You can also get family auditors who will come and sit in on your interactions with between your spouse and your children and give you feedback as to how your emotional uh, relationships are tracking. Even people called wantologists. Wantologists? A wantologist, a professional wanter, someone who will come and tell you all the things that you haven't yet realised that you're missing and need to save up and buy. Oh, my God. Isn't that horrifying? Wow. I kind of want to look into this a little more and come back to it on the show, just just because I find it sickly fascinating that... Someone who comes in and tells you what to want? Don't we have Netflix for that? Have you, se- have you seen the, uh, the current ads from the National Australia Bank? No. Talk to yourself about what you really want a little more. And they have all these children does, ideating. Does, does what I want involve getting a loan? <laughs> of course. Oh. Well, what, things that are wantable... <laughs> Don't cost pocket change, okay. unless you're watching a McDonald's ad, and then I can't just want to look out the window and enjoy the the steadily falling orange leaves from the trees in Royal Parade. Jeez, that sounds wholesome. Mm. Mm. But can I buy it? <laughs> you already own it. Uh, okay, okay. Your eyes, the time, right, the right. space—it's okay. all yours. Right. Um. But anyway, upshot is cool, wet. Don't go outside. <laughs> unless you don't, unless you have to, or unless you're already outside, in which case I'm, I apologize for, for making today's weather so terrible. Yeah. Um, up next, we're going to be hearing an interview that James McKenzie from In Your Face, uh, mm-hmm. the host of In Your Face, conducted with Claire Land. Claire Land is an academic, I think she's at La Trobe at the moment, mm. and she also wrote, uh, Decolonizing Solidarity, excellent book about, uh, how to effectively ally um, with colonised peoples. Mm. Um, and it's good reading in the lead-up to the Stolen Wealth game, so if you're able to get your hands on a copy... Do so. Mm. There's also a reading group. I think they meet once every couple of weeks as mm. well and talk about... Uh, but, yeah, great timing. Uh, 3CR breakfast programming will be crossing. My understanding is we'll be crossing to activists on the ground at the Stolen Wealth Games mm. protests up in the Gold Coast. It's a really important time when the eyes of the global media are mm. on mm. Australia, uh, similar to the Sydney Olympics where, bizarrely, John Howard was championing... Overseas, there was newscasts saying he's a champion of Indigenous rights and all these kind of things, and it was a time to poke some holes in some of those assertions. So hopefully this provides that platform and opportunity again. Mm. But this is an interview that uh, James and Claire sat down and had last week. We're joined by Claire Land. Claire is the author of Decolonising Solidarity, Dilemmas and Direction for Supporters of Indigenous Struggles. Claire, welcome. Thank you. That's an amazing title. Uh, where to begin? Uh, how would you define decolonising solidarity? Well, it's uh, got a double meaning. Um, it means that the practice of solidarity needs to be decolonised. So um, for people who are non-Indigenous wanting to support Indigenous struggles, we need to do that in a way that doesn't contain colonial dynamics of taking over um, and being patronising and displacing Aboriginal people at the same time that we're wanting to be supporters. The second meaning of it is that solidarity, political support of Aboriginal struggles, needs to be directed to, needs to be a force for decolonising. It's not about reconciliation um, or um, closing the gap. It's about um, land rights increasing repatriating land and power to Aboriginal people. So decolonising solidarity tries to express both of those ideas 
And, of course, Indigenous solidarity is so incredibly important today on what is a disastrous day, really, for Indigenous communities. I mean, it's incredible, incredibly insensitive that we're actually celebrating the 26th of January when it was just the beginning of so many terrible things for Indigenous people. What emotions come up for you, Claire, when you hear the words Australia Day? Australia Day makes me think of flag-waving Aussies and most of... I mean, and, and flag-waving Aussies, there's a particular type of flag-waving Aussie that is a white nationalist racist, and that is really scary. That's what Australia Day makes me think of on, on one level, but um, it is a highly significant, highly sim- it's a highly symbolic day. It is the, it's the worst day you could choose to celebrate um, the Australian nation from an Aboriginal per- point of view. Um, like there isn't a more insensitive, there's a, no more insensitive day you could choose because it is um, the day that Sydney Cove um, was, um, you know, like that possession was declared over Sydney Cove. So, yeah, I mean, I wasn't involved at all with Aboriginal people or any political Aboriginal people or Indigenous struggles before 97, but since then I've got to, I've worked alongside a lot of Aboriginal people and it's just, like the whole of January is just this feeling of dread building up and building up um, to to the worst and saddest day in the year. But but that said, I mean every day is a struggle. But the high the highly symbolic nature of it, it does does bring it to the fore somewhat. Why is it so difficult to convince the mainstream media? Do you think that um, Australia Day needs to be changed to a different date? I mean, it just seems a no brainer to me. Yeah, look, I think I think it's a massive testament to Aboriginal political um, actors since 1938 and probably prior, but that was the day that the Day of Mourning was declared by just these amazing Aboriginal community people in Sydney. That um, so um, Melbourne and Sydney people um, meeting in Sydney for a national meeting um, and others as well. But um, I'm not sure that it's a it's a no brainer to change the date, but I'll, I'll come back to that. I think the fact that each year there is more and more questioning by a greater number of, I guess, the general population, non, non-Aboriginal population of Australia, I think that is has been increasing. So Aboriginal people have been chipping away at the idea of blindly celebrating on Australia Day, because it is about it does it's a bit like dancing on on the graves of Aboriginal people to just celebrate and not at all reflect or or recognise um, that there's another side to the story. Um, so, yeah, but if you want to talk about change date, that, that'd be good. Do you want to go to that now? Yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that it's it's one of those things that 3CR listeners should really, really spend some time on because there's a lot of amazing, you know, amazing sympathy for Aboriginal struggles on, on 3CR and amongst the listeners, but there are a number of political nuances. So... There's, a, there's been a consistent questioning of the character of a feeling that should that should prevail on on the 26th of January. One, I mean, it was called the Day of Mourning back in 1938. It's then be, it's it's also called it's the Day of Invasion. It's Invasion Day. It's Survival Day. But in the last couple of years, there's been you know the hashtag change the date. The Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, their hashtag is Abolish Australia Day. Um, and Robbie Thorpe, who's well-known to 3CR listeners, a long-time broadcaster and, of course, political theorist of the Southeast Aboriginal struggle, um, he's, he's, he's actually asking people to make a date. You know, it's, it's not about... If we could change the date, nothing would be solved. Um, you know, the, the unfinished... You'd have to, you have to deal with the unfinished business... And, uh, and land rights. Otherwise, there's always going to be a problem. And the day will still be a sad day because it's always a day of reflection, even if all the all the political demands are met. It is still a moment, a, a time that's going to be a reminder of the fact that Aboriginal Australia changed forever on that day, or the pivotal, you know, it was the the, the um, pivot point to a completely different way. Um, so, do you think we need to continue to acknowledge the date, but just to reframe it? for instance, to call it Morning yeah. Day, uh, and for White Australia, yeah. if it wants to do its flag-waving, you know, Aussie, Aussie, oi, oi, oi thing, to pick a different date that's not so insensitive and offensive to Indigenous people. 
That's right. And so Ken Wyatt, the Liberal MP from Western Australia, an Aboriginal man, he said that, you know, we can change the date of Australia Day when we become a republic. So that, and that's the Robbie Thorpe line as well in terms of make a date. So Australians can be unified and can have a day together, but we have to make that happen. We have to get from here to treaty. And once we've got a treaty, then that can be the date. So change the date is not a political demand. Um, no one's ever asked to, just to change the date. They've asked for land rights and they've asked for people to remember history. So it is really been great, this, uh, you know, at least for non-Aboriginal people who are going through an education process. It's probably a pretty painful process for Aboriginal people to do the educating, but I think it ha- like the debate and the discussion of all this is important um, and has and, and does have the potential for people to really get um, more informed about the politics of this. Um, so I'm glad I'm glad to talk about it, and I'm you know I don't know I don't have all the answers, but I just think it's important to to try to distinguish between the different politics of the different calls that are being made. You were a key organizer and supporter of the camp Sovereignty Action in 2006, which shaped um, which shaped a lot of the contents of your book Decolonising Solidarity, you know, which gives guidelines for non-Indigenous people to be supportive in relation to. Uh, justice and land rights and restitution. Can you tell us what the experiences were for you during that time? The Black DST um, has been an incredible expression of a political agenda. It's really, it's really sunk in and, and stuck since that time. So that was first kind of published as a as a kind of political statement on a T-shirt in on Invasion Day 2005, um, leading up then to the um, the Stolen Wealth Games. In 2000, March 2006. So yeah, Black GST, the genocide to be stopped, sovereignty to be acknowledged and treaties made. So that's been incredibly influential, I think, politically throughout the progressive community in, in Victoria. Um, yeah, it was beautiful to be part of a staunch group, a, a support, a key supporter of that staunch group of Aboriginal people it was Gary Foley, Robbie Thorpe, Marge Thorpe, beautiful man called Targan and people like Arika Wairulu and Michael Penrith um, were around too. So uh, the solidarity politics that unfolded at the camp were typical of, of stories I'd heard and a bit of history I'd read, um, particularly written by Gary Foley, about whiteness and blackness in the struggle over the 20th century. There have been lots of campaigns, including for Katzi, which ran the campaign to hold and win the 1967 referendum, and then things like Jabaluka, um and different um, different campaigns often have been characterised by conflict and contest over how supporters are expressing that support. And Aboriginal people have had to, um, you know, they want useful supporters, but um, and they'll put up with quite a bit um, if supporters are being useful. But sometimes it's too much, and it's too much work, and 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 they need to ask supporters, look, could you actually? It's great that you're here, but could you do stuff differently? Um, and there was a moment about that at the camp and unfortunately a lot of non-Indigenous people found that um, kind of upsetting and so and weren't able to go, look, this is about the cause, I'm going to stick with it, I'm going to do what I'm asked and, you know, if I've been, you know, slightly um, chagrined, I guess, by a, a little bit of an, an ask to do something differently, then I'll follow that and I will, you know, commit to still being here. So that was a really clear example of, of why the book needed to be written What's your next project? Have you got another book in the pipeline? There is going to be another book. Um, and this time it's writing a story that needs to be told. And it's the story of, of Northland Secondary College, which was the school in East Preston. A lot of three, long-time 3 cell listeners will be aware of it and anyone in the public sector or um, public education in Victoria would know about the, the massive um, number of schools that were closed down by Jeff Kennett in 92, 93 in Victoria. Um Northland was one of them, and it was the school with the highest number of Aboriginal kids enrolled anywhere in the state. And there was a massive campaign by the community there to stop the school from being closed and then to to gain its reopening a couple of years later. Um, So it's a well-known story, particularly for a lot of Koori people, but um, it needs to be further amplified. And um, it's a case of systemic race discrimination by the state. The Royal Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody comes into the story because this was a school that was known and proved to have been stopping Aboriginal kids from going to going to jail and dying in custody. So there's a lot of lessons there. But one of the key parts of it is just the 
people power and the and the winning that struggle. It so was yeah, one that, of the great victories, wasn't it, against Jeff Kenner? That was kind of like a defining moment uh, in the in the backlash against his government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was one of the things that really pissed him off, and and he has then rehabilitated his image to some degree, or tried to, but really he, um, you know, this story can't be let let go. I mean, the, the histories of the Kennedy era. They don't even talk about Northland, and it was one of the one of the biggest battles of his political career. So yeah, it's interesting how even in that short time, the histories have excluded the Aboriginal view of the Kennet years, not just Northland, but also like the Native Title Act and what he did around Native Titles. So yeah, I mean, even since my time as a as a uni student and and up till now, I can see the process of history being written, um, Aboriginal history being written out. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids and come in black, white, grey and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 94198377 or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. You are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast, just coming up to 10 to 8, 7.50am, which means it's time for Over the Wall with Peter Davis and Duncan Graham. This week, the guys from Over the Wall are talking about the uh, rise, the sad rise of a working poor here in Australia. In recent months, Over the Wall has fluctuated between themes over workplace inequality and also other shows we've presented on issues impacting welfare recipients in Australia. The following statement from Parliament Question Time by Tim Watts of the ALP focused on issues for welfare recipients and also workplace inequality issues, how both of these have common points of concern. I call the member for Jellybrand. In recent times, we have begun to see the emergence of an insidious new form of poverty that was previously alien to the Australian way of work, the emergence of a working poor in our society. My electorate in Melbourne's West is home to the gates of the old Sunshine Harvester factory. They're a physical monument not only to the labour of the thousands of people who passed through their gates before the factory gave its name to the surrounding suburb, but also to the landmark 1907 Harvester Judgment that marked the beginning of a universal minimum employment standard in Australia and were an international beacon for workplace rights for decades to come. Now, the IPA once labelled the Harvester Judgment as the second worst decision in Australian history, so that should tell you a little bit about the merits of this policy intervention. The Harvester Judgment was founded on the concept of a, quote, civilised community and the notion that workers needed to be treated as human beings, not simply as commodities in a system. And it's that spirit that we need to recapture in this building at a time of record low wages growth and skyrocketing underemployment. The symptoms of the emergence of the working poor in Australia are everywhere you look. One in five Australian households currently lives on less than the age pension and less than the single minimum wage. 
2.3 million Australians earn the lowest legal rate of pay for the work that they perform, including 450,000 more people. The Productivity Commission has found that between 10 and 15 per cent of Australians, 2.3 to 2.8 million Australians are income poor, that is living in households earning less than half the median income, unable to plan ahead financially for their children's needs, unable to deal with the ordinary financial vicissitudes of life, of accidents, of illness, of a car crash. This last statement by the ALP's Tim Watts reflects also on the cashless welfare card and how people are less able to cope with unexpected expenses such as those just listed by the MP. There are now 1.1 million underemployed Australians, people who are capable of working more and want to work more but don't have the opportunity. 750,000 Australians are currently working second or third jobs as a result of this and it's unsurprising in this context that inequality is at a 75-year high. Too many of our fellow Australians can no longer see the link between hard work and a fair reward. Three million of us, including the 730,000 children who currently live in poverty. Now, there are a number of causes of this phenomenon, but the key cause lies in the rules of our workplaces. As the member of Gorton, quote, we cannot tackle inequality or build a system of inclusive prosperity unless Australia has a workplace relations system that is both productive and fair. Essential to that task is striking the right balance of power between workers and employees and the tilt of bargaining power away from workers and to employers has gone too far. In Australia, workers' bargaining power has been undermined by the enormous growth of non-standard employment, casual jobs, fixed-term contracts, self-employment, labour hire, internships and temporary visa holders. Forms of employment that undermine workers' ability to negotiate collectively. This is a big reason why, despite productivity having grown by 20% in Australian workplaces over the past decade, wages have only grown by 6%. Thinking that a $65 billion corporate tax cut, unfunded, will help fix this, that's not neoliberalism, that's neo-Martianism. What we need to fix this is for government to stand up for workers, to change the rules to put an end to sham contracts, to stop phoenixing of companies that cut wages and conditions, to ensure labour hire firms comply with basic employment conditions and to end the rorting of casual work definitions to avoid providing basic workplace standards. Just a comment on that statement which links corporate tax cuts and the theme of neoliberalism. Neoliberalism was recently applied in the last couple of decades in Germany in the form of corporate tax cuts, which proved no increase to workers' wages in the decades subsequent. Neoliberalism economic theory is also based upon a study which linked productivity and wages growth in the era post-World War II, when it was inevitable that productivity would link to such growth as the world boomed in a post-war economy. The reason why I mention this is that there is no evidence in the decades since that is concrete in showing that corporate tax cuts link to wages growth. We are living on a myth that was created, an economic study that studied countries in the post-war regrowth boom, saying that corporate tax cuts link to real wages growth. It's never been true since that post-war era. But still, our politicians of today decry that as primary and very realistic economic theory. Another issue to discuss on Over the Wall today is, as part of the 2017-18 federal budget, the Australian government has announced the cashless debit card. It's going to expand to a third and fourth location. This was managed to be passed through the recent sitting of Parliament before the current one. And these two new locations will be the Goldfields region in Western Australia and Bundaberg in the Harvey Bay region in Queensland. Both were selected based upon support, it is said, from local community and high levels of welfare dependency. There are already many campaigns from local members of the community opposing this expansion of the cashless welfare card to their community and the real-life voices of the many people who are organising large community campaigns to oppose the expansion of the cashless welfare card in Australia. The cashless welfare card will come to these new locations from early 2018. Many politicians seeking more punitive measures against welfare recipients and New Start recipients 
have argued that 75% of people that use Newstart are only short-term recipients and don't need a large amount of money to see them past that temporary gap in between jobs and new employment. Other regrettable things we've heard recently is Families Minister Jenny Macklin saying that she could live quite easily on the Newstart payment amount. The punitive focus by the media and government is now focused on the long-term unemployed with an increase of obligation requirements for recipients and any failure to meet those obligations, punitive measures. Gradually a slant, a very disturbing and worrying trend is that the long-term unemployed are being seen as less worthy for poverty assistance than the people who only require new start for short periods. We'll finish the program today with this news media release report from the Australian Council of Social Services to All Media. When it comes to income inequality, the people in the top 20% of income earners get five times more than the people in the bottom 20%. Now, if you think this is bad, we should talk about wealth inequality. This refers to how much people own, and this is where things start to get scary. A person in the top 20% wealth group has, wait for it, 70 times more than a person in the bottom 20%. Inequality divides the community and locks people out of opportunities to improve their lives. This is why we have to act. Income and wealth inequality is a rising trend and the gap between the well-off and those living in poverty is widening. But the great thing is, it's not inevitable. We now have to strengthen our tax and social security systems and reduce inequality, not the other way around. Have a look around our website to find out more. And make a difference right now about the fight against growing inequality, which is the first step to solving the problem. This has been Over the Wall on Monday Breakfast and thank you for listening. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.